Nature, the universe really, is hinting at things that we cannot explain. And that's not new, but just to put it in perspective, picture the periodic table of elements, right? That chart, it's got carbon and hydrogen and oxygen, all that. You know, it's the ingredients for the recipe of everything that we know about. And that right there is where things are about to get tricky. Because it turns out that most of the universe appears to be full of stuff that's not on that chart. According to Humboldt State University physicist C.D. Hoyle, So there's about 20 times more stuff in the universe that we don't understand than we do understand. And that's a problem. Science has discovered a lot about the universe, but you're about to explore the undiscovered universe. And Professor Hoyle is going to peer out into space with you. He's going to point at things and he's basically going to say, yeah, that's pretty confusing. But it gets even worse. Why do we even have that 5% of matter left over? It shouldn't even be there, really, according to quantum mechanics. That's pretty bad. And as we mentioned, even worse in a way is that we have these two models of nature that don't agree with each other, quantum mechanics and general relativity. So Professor C.D. Hoyle is your tour guide through the undiscovered universe. Things like dark matter, Big Bang cosmology, gravitational waves, dark energy, some of the biggest mysteries ever. My name is Mike Dronkers. You're listening to My Favorite Lecture. It's a new show from KHSU. The idea here is that educators from Humboldt State give free lectures in our community about some of the most interesting things they know about. And tonight's episode was recorded in front of a packed house at the Plaza View Room in Arcata, California. Before he stepped up to the lectern as people were mingling around the room, we had a chance to pick his brain, and we started by asking C.D. Hoyle, why did he want to talk about the undiscovered universe? These are really important unanswered questions that a lot of people are working on. And, um, you know, you hear a lot about things in the news like dark energy, dark matter. And this is a focus of you know, work for a lot of people. And they're not just kind of these crazy ideas that you might hear about in the news sometimes. So. How do you disarm people who are intimidated by physics? For one thing, I'd say it's just like everything else. You practice it and then you get good at it, right? It's just like playing an instrument. You don't start off being a virtuoso. Yeah, it seems a little bit challenging at first, I think, to a lot of people, but everything does when you start it out. You're going to talk about the undiscovered universe. Give us a thumbnail of what's coming up tonight. So I'd like to um, talk about kind of the big picture issues and really these kind of bizarre phenomena that physicists and astronomers and other scientists have really no good idea of how to answer at this point in time. And that's what keeps us in business at Physicists in some sense, so. Well, I wish you luck tonight. Have a good lecture. Yeah, thanks very much, Mike. Good evening. I'm Lisa Rossbacher. I'm the president at Humboldt State University, but I'm not the only one in the room. Rollin Richmond, who was the uh, most immediate past president, is also with us this evening, so it's good to see you, Rollin. And I'm honored to, to welcome you all here and to thank you for coming. I'm not even going to ask how many of you remember my favorite Martian. Don't. Don't. <laughs> I do. And I was going to try to make an analogy with that, but... Tonight is the first episode of the first season of my favorite lecture. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a brand new series that uh, provides an opportunity for Humboldt State University professors to deliver one of their favorite, remarkable, or best lectures for a community audience. And so this is really meant to strengthen our relationships with the larger community that we are, we are honored to be part of. I want to express our thanks to Arcata Main Street for sponsoring this series, along with KHSU. And I see so many members of the local community here, and I really want to thank you all for coming, for your support of Humboldt State, and for your participation in this uh, inaugural event. And after tonight's talk, you may have questions. We're hoping to have a little bit of time at the end of this for you to, um, to ask those. So it's my honor to introduce C.D. Hoyle. He is a professor of physics at Humboldt State. He teaches both introductory and advanced classes. And he runs our gravitational research laboratory, where he does things like measure gravity over distances of a couple of millimeters. 
which is pretty amazing stuff. He's incredibly popular with our students. I love listening to him talk, and I know you're going to enjoy it too. So please join me in welcoming Professor C.D. Hoyle. Well, thanks very much, President Rossbacher, and thanks everyone else for um, organizing this. I'm really excited to be here tonight and tell you about some of my favorite things in physics and astronomy. The focus of um, what we're going to talk about tonight is um, really the big unanswered questions that exist in physics and astronomy. And sometimes you think that things are all figured out, especially if you just take a freshman physics course because you're studying what happened 300 years ago for the most part. Okay, and so we're going to focus on some of the big unanswered questions that keep us in business in physics. But to do that, we're going to also have to do a little background of what actually we do understand. And I think that's an important part. So we're going to focus on some, talking about some of our models of nature, including our fundamental forces, which leads us into a discussion of kind of origin and evolution of the universe through Big Bang cosmology. And so that's where we're headed. And then finally, we'll try to wrap up with how actually HSU is contributing to try to answer some of these questions, and especially the students here at HSU. That's a little overview of what we're going to talk about this evening. Just a few thoughts on this lecture series. Um, well, can I find a lecture that's my favorite? The answer is yes, but it happens to be from the end of a year-long sequence of senior electromagnetism where you show that the electric and the magnetic fields are really the same thing through relativistic field transformations, but I don't think you want to hear about that, okay? <laughs> but that happens to be my favorite one, okay? But another part of what I teach is also general education, and I've taught the Cosmos course over the years. Um, not recently, but um, I've taught it several times, which is a general education course uh, for non-scientists. And um, we do a lot of talking about these models of nature. So on the very small scale, when we talk about things happening at short distances, we talk about quantum physics. And again, that's in the realm of atoms and particles and things like that. And on the other side, we have really big things in the universe. We have galaxies and clusters of galaxies and stars, and we need to use things like relativity to describe that. These two realms uh, share certain things, like light and energy and discussions of space and time. And they fall into a couple categories. Quantum physics, the study of very small things, falls under a blanket of what we call the standard model of particle physics. And that's one of our frameworks for describing how nature works and the way we can predict outcomes of experiments and all these good things that we do as scientists. On the other side, we have what we call classical physics and astronomy, which we use to describe things happening at very large scales. So these are some of the terms you'll hear me talk about, the standard model or classical physics, and we'll talk a little bit more about them as well. And all of this Fundamental physics and astronomy feeds into our model of what we know about the origin and evolution of the universe, which is called Big Bang cosmology. And so um, that's kind of the big picture. And there's a lot of text here on the slide I have up, but I'm just going to kind of highlight a few things over these distant scales. So on the very small end of things, which for very small, we're going to talk about some things that happen on the scale of less than a micrometer. And for scale, a human hair is about 50 micrometers across. And so we're talking about a small fraction of a human hair. Below those distance scales, which is basically below what you can see, the dominant things that are happening are governed by quantum mechanics. And if you've never studied quantum mechanics, um, that's okay. We're going to do a crash course in it. The main thing you need to know is that the outcome of any experiment can only be predicted via probabilities. It's a probabilistic theory. So you can never, with 100% certainty, predict what will happen on any individual experiment. But if you do things a million times, you can get a good idea of what the average behavior will be. That makes sense, I hope. And um, if you want to get into a little bit of the mathematics of it, the Schrodinger equation is the fundamental kind of um, guiding mathematical tool we use on these distant scales. And there's many strange and counterintuitive things that you run into when you study quantum mechanics, because again, it's not stuff we see on the day-to-day -day scale. It's below what our vision can see. But at the same time, 
It's responsible for all of the fun things we have. Your cell phone, your computer, those all run on quantum mechanics, and they wouldn't work without quantum mechanics. So even though it's a probabilistic model of nature, we can use it to make real useful things. There's also the everyday scale, which we don't need to talk too much about, but that's kind of from about one micrometer up to about the size of the Earth, and that's stuff that we experience, right, all the time, and most of the things that we run into are governed by classical physics in this kind of distance scale. And in classical physics, it's totally the opposite of quantum mechanics. You can predict um, the outcomes of an experiment based on deterministic laws, not on probabilities. So it's totally different um, on kind of the everyday scale, and that's why you know, being able to predict things with some certainty kind of makes sense to us, because that's what we experience. You know? And then um, you move up to the very large scales, like you know, solar system distances and beyond, and uh, then you have to involve other strange things like Einstein's theory of relativity to make sense of what's going on. And there's a several major unexplained things that happen on these large distance scales too, as well as the small, as we'll see. But um, here's where some of our unanswered questions come about. And it turns out that a lot of the questions that you get for the large distance scale also show up as things you could measure at the very small distance scale, which is kind of interesting. We have this connection between um, astronomy and cosmology, or the study of the origin and evolution of the universe, to you know, the quantum scale, um, which is a big area of research right now. And so how do we connect and unify these scales? Because in the end, um, physicists like to make things simple, believe it or not. Um, if you've ever taken a freshman physics course, you might not think that because there's a lot of equations and you know, there's a lot of things to remember. But really what we're after is to simplify things into a few guiding principle or principles or mathematical um, frameworks, okay? And that's kind of, physicists are reductionists. We wanna actually try to find a, a simple explanation that can help us um, study a lot of different processes, I guess. And so the goal, one of the goals is to kind of, how do we unify these different things happening across different distance scales? Sometimes we have deterministic things. Sometimes we have totally probabilistic experiments. How do we reconcile those differences? That's one of the big questions that we run into nowadays in, in physics. So I'm going to guide you through an example of the development of physical law. And the example I'm going to use is what my kind of field of research is, which is gravity. And it's just one example of kind of, this is we're in the still in the phase of things that we do know and understand, okay? We haven't gotten to the things that we don't know, but we'll get there soon enough, okay? And so, in the 1600s, it was known that planets move in ellipses, like Kepler's laws, and so planets move in, you know, circles or ovals, ellipses. One thing that was also present before, was kind of also true in the, that time period and before, was that there was this distinction between what was happening in the heavens or the celestial realm and what happened on Earth. And so it was not assumed that the same processes that governed what happened out there were also determining what happens on Earth, okay? There were these two distinct realms, right? And Newton comes along and he was able to unify these two realms. And it was kind of one example of a unification or a simplification. It's probably the first example of a unification of, of forces in some sense or, or laws in physics. And he, Newton came along and he said, well, hey, what if the same things that cause, the same entity or quantity that causes things to fall on the earth also holds the planets in these elliptical orbits? And that was his kind of proposal. He said, well, what if that's the case? And it turns out that he could use mathematics to show that there was actually the same force, gravity, causing things to fall on the earth as orbit um, the sun. Okay, and again, that was not you know, necessarily thought to be true at that, back in that, that time. His thought experiment works something like this. You throw something, it lands some distance away from you. You throw something harder, it lands a little bit farther away. If you could throw something hard enough, it would hit you in the back of the head because it would keep falling, but it would never hit the ground because of the curvature of the Earth. And that's what we call an orbit, right? So something that is free-falling 
if you make it move fast enough, will end up in orbit. And so the gravity that makes things fall on the ground also keeps the planets in their orbits. And I have up here just a couple numbers of things. You know, a low Earth orbit, satellites like the International Space Station take about an hour and a half to go around, 24 hours for the satellites that we use for our GPSs, and the moon takes a month. But it's all the same law. It's all gravity working at these different distance scales. So this is the first example of a unification in physics. And so, again, to summarize, Newton took what's happening on the Earth, he combined it with things that were observed from, the, from space by Kepler and Brahe and others, and um, Newton was no doubt um, very good at math, and he was able to come up with a mathematical relationship that relates um, the force of gravity between two objects, and I promise you, there's not many equations in this talk, and I think this might be the only one. But it's an important one, because it is the first example of using mathematics to describe a fundamental force of nature. And basically what this says is that the force between two objects is proportional to their masses and inversely proportional to their distance squared. And so if you move things twice as far apart, the force drops down by a factor of four, something like that. And so, um, again, you don't need to know the details of the mathematics. What's important is that he was able to come up with this um, model of gravity that actually leads directly to the observed orbits of the planets and also explains why things fall to the ground. And so um, that was pretty cool at the time. It also kind of interesting, interestingly enough predicts that all objects fall at the same rate and um, it, Newton's law was able to predict that, too. Galileo came before Newton. And so this was a big achievement, um, one of Newton's many achievements. And that worked really well for about 250 years, but there were a few observations that didn't quite fit with Newton's law of gravity. We don't need to get into the details, but the orbit of Mercury wasn't quite right. Things associated with the bending of light around the sun. Anyway, there were little details that people tended to sweep under the rug that uh, were not consistent with Newton's law of gravity. And this is one thing that really bothered Albert Einstein. For example, Albert Einstein was troubled by, well, there's this distance here. Who measures that, okay? Is that true, that same distance measured for everybody in every frame of reference? because he had proven a few years earlier that distances are not the same for everybody in the universe. So then the question becomes, who measures that? Also, does this force act instantaneously? In other words, if I shake a mass on one side of the universe, does one respond on the other side of the universe instantaneously? That's what Newton's law says. That doesn't make Einstein happy because Einstein says nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, which he had also proven during the late 1800s, early 1900s, okay? And so there were some things here that just didn't seem quite right. And Einstein, after he published Special Relativity in his miraculous year of 1905, in which he also explained a bunch of other things with different papers, he endeavored over the next 10 years to try to incorporate gravity into his theory of relativity. Okay? And because according to his theory of relativity, Newton's law shouldn't really work. And that led to general relativity. So you can see what I'm getting at here is that things that work for a very long time in physics and seem to be absolute laws can suddenly be overthrown. I mean, 250 years, Newton's law worked just fine except for a few little details that nobody really cared about. And then Einstein comes along and says, hey, wait, those details are actually a big deal and they actually fundamentally reshape the way we think about gravity. And that's what led to the, the theory of general relativity, which was published in 1915 at its 100th anniversary last year. And general relativity, um, you think of relativity, you think of E equals mc squared, but general relativity is really a model of gravity. So he published his theory of general relativity, and in addition to explaining a lot of these things that have been swept under the rug, it also predicted a bunch of new weird phenomena. For example, that light bends, everything is kind of just following curvature of space-time, including light, and even light will bend as it passes near a massive object. And that should be measurable. And in 1919, this guy Eddington went out in the ocean and measured um, 
light uh, deflecting around uh, a transit event in the, in the cosmos, and sure enough, it obeyed Einstein's relationship exactly, and it didn't obey Newton's. And that's how things change, by new observations um, and measurements. And so that's when Einstein became famous. He published it in 1915, it wasn't until 1919, when a couple of different puzzle pieces fit together, and all of a sudden his model was making a lot more sense than Newton's model. And again, there are a lot of other things. He was able to explain why the planets have the orbits that they do, the deflection of light as it went around the edge of the sun. And kind of amazingly, last year, um, one of his predictions was just proven true as well, which was the existence of gravitational waves. And so those were predicted to exist in 1915. Last year, they were observed by the LIGO detectors up in Washington and Louisiana. And we actually have an HSU alum who was running the experiment the night that that was detected, which is kind of cool. But here's the thing about general relativity. It's passed every single test that anyone has ever put it to. And that's why we think it's a really good model of nature. But the question is always out there, could what happened to Newton's law of gravity happen to general relativity? So this is kind of how physical laws and models get established but they get overthrown. And a big area of research these days is, can we overthrow Einstein? And is there any reason to, right? And why might you want to do that? Turns out there's some big unanswered questions. Some of the solutions to those questions end up predicting that general relativity is wrong. But nobody's been able to find a problem with it yet for 100 years. And that's, you know, it's not 250 years like Newton, but it's pretty good, considering our technology has advanced quite a ways. Just for a little um, example, this bending of light is called gravitational lensing. So it tells you that a massive object in space-time actually bends like, like a light like a lens does. And that's kind of cool, because lenses form images, right? And the same thing happens in space. If we have something like a galaxy, and behind it we have a star, the light is bent around as it arrives to us, and we see images of these stars that are spread out away from the galaxy. It's called gravitational lensing, and it's a consequence of general relativity and the curvature of space. Here's a real example of a gravitational lens. This is a galaxy in the middle and a star in the background. The way general relativity works, the star in the background is, the light is bent such that it gives you four images of the same star. And there's definite ways to tell that that's actually the same light, or the same source of light. But there's um, four images of a star. If you have a galaxy in front of another galaxy, you end up getting a ring-type um, shape instead of this um, four points. This is called an Einstein cross and an Einstein ring. And these are real, real pictures of gravitational lenses. And we also have real gravitational waves, observed last year and reported this year. And this is the waveform. You can see a little, I'm showing on the screen, a waveform of the gravitational waves that come by and shake mirrors around in Washington and Louisiana in just the right way that agrees exactly with what, what Einstein would have predicted, which is pretty amazing. The things, the black holes that were making these waves were billions of light years away. So that's pretty amazing that we can detect that here on the surface of the Earth. My point is that gravity is an example of success, and especially general relativity. So far, nobody's been able to poke any holes in it. It's a sound theory, but that's not to say it'll always stay that way. We have other fundamental forces in nature. We have four of them that we know of. They're listed here. We have a strong nuclear force. We have an electromagnetic force, which we're familiar with from plugging things in and running lights and computers and things like that. There's a weak nuclear force, which is responsible for radioactive decay, among other things. And um, gravity, and incidentally, the strong nuclear force holds nuclei together, and the weak nuclear force tends to break them apart. So that's kind of interesting. They have different strengths, okay? And what you can see up here is that the strong force is the strongest. That's why it's named such. And then we have electromagnetism and the weak force. And then we have gravity, which is 10 to the 40 times, or a one with 40 zeros in front of it, times weaker than these other ones. 
Now you say, but that can't be true because I experience gravity every day. It's the strongest thing around. Well, but I challenge you to lift any object and you're overpowering the gravity of the entire Earth with just a few little electrical interactions in your muscles and your arm. So the volume of your bicep or tricep that's doing the lifting easily overpowers the gravity of the entire Earth, right? And so it's just that on average, electrical forces kind of cancel out in some sense. But gravity is actually very weak. This is a problem that physicists worry about because when you see large discrepancies like this, 40 orders of magnitude, you tend to think there's a reason for that. And there are various ideas for why that might be. More than that is that all of the other three fundamental forces of nature are described by quantum mechanics. And gravity is described by general relativity. And here's a big problem. Quantum mechanics is probabilistic. General relativity is a classical theory. There is no quantum mechanical picture of gravity. In other words, these models of nature actually describe very different universes, yet we live in one universe. And it turns out they're actually mathematically inconsistent with one another. So that's a problem. Right? We live in one universe. It's very strange if there was more than one model that explained things, right? And so this is a big problem. And the next step that a lot of people worry about is how do we make a consistent framework? How do we unify gravity, which is classical, with the other forces of nature that are quantum mechanical? It's a big area of research. And it's a big problem that's embarrassing for physics, really. So quantum mechanics on the other side has been extremely successful, otherwise we wouldn't have computers and cell phones and all these other um, devices that we use every day. But how about some of what we don't know? Well, I just alluded to it, is that gravity and quantum mechanics really don't describe the same universe. Um, there are efforts to try to unify gravity and quantum mechanics. Um, you might have heard of string theory in the news. There's been lots of stories about that. That's one effort that tries to unify gravity and quantum mechanics. And it hasn't been successful because it hasn't made any predictions that you can test, right? That was one of the things about Einstein's model of nature. It made predictions that you could actually test and go out and measure, and that's why it beat out Newton, right? String theory hasn't been so uh, successful yet. And then the other big question is, why is gravity so weak compared to the other fundamental forces? Um, that's something we call the hierarchy or the naturalness problem, and these are real things that physicists worry about. Okay, aside from gravity, what other problems are there? Well, we could have other new forces of nature. Nobody says that there's only four forces of nature. That's just the ones that we've found, and there might be others. And in particular, we have something in the universe, which we'll talk a little bit more about, called dark matter, and it might obey different forces than the ones we know of. And it might be different particles, and it might be made of different particles than the ones we know of. And we also have dark energy, which we'll be talking about. And dark matter and dark energy really um, are unexplained phenomena at this point. We're going to talk about that. And then, kind of a crazy but true question that physicists ask, at least it sounds crazy, is why did any matter survive the Big Bang? According to everything we know about quantum mechanics, no matter should have been left over after the Big Bang. There should have been nothing. So that's a problem, because we're here, right? Okay. So these are some of the big questions that we grapple with in physics. And this leads us into a discussion of Big Bang cosmology and kind of the origin and evolution of the universe, because in addition, because the fundamental forces work throughout the universe, as far as we know, and they should be able to describe what happened from the Big Bang up until now, right? They do a pretty good job, to tell you the truth. Gravity is what's dominating things on large scales nowadays. If we roll back time, the universe gets smaller and hotter, and then the other forces may play a more important role, and um, we actually have a very hot and dense origin of our universe. That's what the evidence leads us to um, predict, basically. And, but it also predicts that we have dark matter and dark energy and that we shouldn't have any matter at all. <laughs> so there's, a, there's some interesting things 
to study here. So why do we think the Big Bang happened at all? Let's not worry ourselves with the problem for one second. Let's talk for a minute about what we do, kind of understand. The Big Bang happened, and it's not because of just one reason. There's several and three main pieces of evidence that point to a hot, dense, kind of, I don't like to use the word explosion, but explosive start to our universe. Um, and that's the fact that the universe is expanding, which was only discovered in the 1920s. Um, if it's expanding, if you, roll time, if you roll the movie backwards, right, you end up with something very small in the past, if it's expanding now. And um, we don't have any mechanism that would show that it wasn't expanding in the past. There's something called the cosmic microwave background radiation that exists. So the universe is expanding. Hubble saw that in the 1920s. Farther galaxies move faster away from us. That's a pretty easy one. The cosmic microwave background radiation, um, if you have a campfire and you wake up in the morning, there's still a little heat left over, right? And so the cosmic microwave background is the heat left over from the Big Bang. And we can measure that. It was actually um, discovered by accident in 1965 by a couple um, scientists and engineers at Bell Labs. And it turns out to a, if you have an old TV that still gets static on it, you know, some of that static, about 1% of the little spots in the static is actually light, which is heat from the Big Bang, photons of light, which is kind of cool. And what the cosmic microwave background also tells us, unfortunately, is that we have to have dark matter and dark energy. Hmm. And that's not so satisfying. And the details of that are a little involved, so, but let's just take it at face value. This is a map of that light or heat left over from the Big Bang. As a I have a map up here of the, the Planck results that were published in 2015. We have hot spots and cold spots as you look over this, the sky. And, uh, but that is the light left over from, and heat left over from the Big Bang. And it tells us that our temperature is about, of the whole universe is about 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. The fact that it's not zero is the heat left over from the Big Bang because it's been cooling for 13.8 billion years. But we can measure that. And, it, and we can measure it to a high degree of precision now with satellites like Planck. Elemental abundances, I, I don't want to talk about that too much, but if you look at the universe and ask what's in it, the astronomers will say hydrogen and helium, that's it. Uh, everything else comes in very small quantities. And so about 75% of the universe is hydrogen, 25% is helium. The rest is almost negligible, even though that's what we're made of. And that seems surprising, but it turns out that that's exactly what quantum mechanics predicts. If you say what was happening when the universe was very small and very dense, well, when it was very small and very dense, you have to use quantum mechanics, right? Because that's a small distance scale. And quantum mechanics actually can tell us that the universe should be about three quarters hydrogen and a quarter helium. So that's kind of cool. And then if we look back in time, which we can do by looking out to farther distances in the universe, because it takes light some time to travel to our telescopes. So the farther we look out, the further we look back in time. We can actually use our laws of physics and our fundamental forces to kind of model what was happening in the past. Our model of nature does a really good job, actually. In fact, we can pretty confidently model what was happening in the universe back to about one ten-thousandth of a second after the Big Bang. It's pretty good, right? But it's not all the way back, and that's part of the problem. Um, you have to go further back to answer the question, why do we have any matter at all, for one thing. We do very well, but we still have some unanswered questions. And here's some of what we don't know. We don't know a lot. We, have, we know that all this evidence for the Big Bang, while it's successful, it's successful if you include dark energy and dark matter, which we don't understand. And as we've alluded to, relativity and quantum mechanics really don't describe the same universe. And that's a big problem. The problem that we have matter is, a, is another one. And so 
These are all real, you know, things like that and things like whether there are extra dimensions of space due to string theory. All these kind of wild sounding questions are real questions that physicists ask and develop experiments to test. As I said, it keeps us in business, right? Just a little bit about dark matter and dark energy. What are these things? We don't know. But we can infer their existence from some measurements. If you look at how galaxies rotate, um, if you use Newton's laws and Einstein's relativity, it tells you how the galaxies should rotate. In other words, it tells you that how the speeds of the stars should behave as you, get, as you go from the center out to the edge of the galaxy. And we can measure that very well by looking at the Doppler shift. When stars are moving away from you, they look a little bit redder. When they move toward you, they look a little bit bluer. It's the same reason a car horn sounds a little bit higher pitched when it's coming at you and a little bit lower pitched when it's going away from you. Same idea. We can do these measurements very precisely. And here's the problem. If you look at what Kepler and Newton and Einstein predict, it's very different from what is actually observed. And in order to account for that difference, you need a whole lot of stuff that's not emitting light. Now you may say, well, maybe that's planets or dust or something like that. If you count all that stuff up, it's not near enough, at least as far as we can tell. And you need a whole lot of extra matter to explain this problem. And since it doesn't emit light, we call it dark matter, but we don't know what it is. We know that it's not from the periodic table, which is kind of, um, should make you a little uneasy maybe, right? What is this stuff? It's everywhere. Even when you uh, look at the collision of two galaxies, you can see that there's different ways to image the matter in a galaxy. One is with regular light. You can say, what's emitting light, right? What do we see? And the other way is to use gravitational lensing or to basically say, where is all the mass of the galaxy? And when we look at galaxy collisions, we find that the matter that's emitting light is not where most of the matter actually is. I have a slide up here where we have blue regions, which is where most of the matter is contained, and we can measure that from gravity. And we have red regions that show you where the light emitting matter is, and they don't overlap. And so it shows you that most of the matter in galaxies is dark. And this is really a particle physics question. You might think this is an astronomy question, but it's not, because matter is made of particles as far as we know. That's the only way quantum mechanics has to describe mass, things with mass. And so this really is a particle physics question, and this is where the you know, astrophysics and cosmology start to overlap with particle physics and things that are happening at places like the Large Hadron Collider and CERN in Europe. Dark energy, what's that? We don't know. Um, what we do know is if we look very deep into the universe, and this is the Hubble deep field, uh, we see all these different galaxies. We look very deep into the universe, those distant galaxies are moving away from us faster than they should be, according to, again, relativity and things like that. And we observe that with supernova. Okay, explosions. We look at exploding stars very far away, and we can tell how fast they're moving away from us. That's a whole other lecture, probably. But it's kind of like measuring tree rings. Okay, you know, when you have a good year, you get a big growth of a tree, right? And same time, if you have a big era of a, uh, an era of big expansion in the universe, the galaxies tend to spread out a little bit more. And so, um, we by mapping the distant galaxies, we, it's like counting tree rings and looking at the distance between them to map the expansion history of the universe, which is kind of cool. This was just discovered in 1998. It was a big surprise to a lot of people. Edward Witten, who's a very renowned theoretical physicist, called it the most embarrassing observation in physics, and that's about the only thing we can say at the time. And that's still pretty much true. It's, you know, it's almost 20 years later. If we look at what makes up the universe, it's a little disturbing based on these results. It turns out that most of the universe, about 70% of it, is dark energy. And about 27% of it is this stuff called dark matter, neither of which we understand at all. It turns out that 
Only about 5% or 1 20th of the stuff in the universe is actually stuff from the periodic table that we understand. So there's about 20 times more stuff in the universe that we don't understand than we do understand. And that's a problem, at least from a physics point of view. But it gets even worse. Like I said, it gets even worse than that. That's not the only problem. Why do we even have that 5% of matter left over? It shouldn't even be there, really, according to quantum mechanics. Yeah, so that's pretty bad. And as we mentioned, even worse in a way is that we have these two models of nature that don't agree with each other quantum mechanics and general relativity. Kind of a summary is we do have incredibly successful theories that work in certain scenarios, but we have a lot of unanswered, unanswered questions. And we have a lot of work to do as physicists and astronomers and cosmologists. But we do have some success. We can predict what happened in the Big Bang back to very early times. We can build amazing devices on the principles of quantum mechanics. And we can, you know, land probes on distant planets that require that we use general relativity. In fact, the GPS in your phone wouldn't work without correcting for general relativity. And that's probably another lecture, too. What's being done about it? A lot, actually. This um, keeps a lot of us in jobs. There are a lot of experimental tests of gravity because maybe general relativity isn't the end story, right? Maybe to merge it with quantum mechanics, there has to be something else going on, and maybe we can observe a flaw in general relativity. Nobody's been able to do that yet, but people try. And there's also astronomical studies to um, determine the exact amount, amount of dark matter and dark energy in the universe. And a lot of studies on this cosmic microwave background radiation or heat, campfire heat left over from the Big Bang. In places like um, CERN in Europe, they're doing particle physics experiments to see if they can actually create dark matter particles in the lab. Uh, we don't know what they are, but maybe we can make one. If we smash things together hard enough, maybe, we can, maybe one will pop out, you know? That's kind of the idea in some sense. Um, searches for the explanation of why we have any matter at all are also underway at those particle accelerators too. It's a wide variety of people from different disciplines. And I just wanna kind of um, bring this to a close with, and talk a little bit about what students here at HSU are actually doing to answer some of these questions or to help answer some of these questions. And um, we do have a gravity research laboratory where we're effectively looking for evidence of quantum gravity, although on the day-to-day, -day, my students would tell you it's soldering and machining parts and, and writing computer code, but that's how you get to you know, um, the end eventually when maybe we'll see something new and exciting, or maybe we'll just confirm relativity further, and either way is, a, uh, is a, you know, an interesting result. Dr. Rodriguez Hidalgo in our department, Paula, she has a lot of students studying distant quasars to understand the astrophysics at large distance scales in the universe. And uh, we have a couple physics majors who actually just returned from spending a summer internships at CERN. Um, where they were um, working on particle physics experiments. This is just a sample, too. We have um, other things going on as well. So we're trying to make our contribution right here at Humboldt. And of course, I could talk about those things for another hour, but I think I'd like to, to wrap it up here and really uh, thank everyone for coming. And again, thank you to um, everyone who invited me here and President Rossbacher for the introduction. So um, thanks. You've been listening to My Favorite Lecture from KHSU, and now that Professor C.D. Hoyle has us peering out into the undiscovered universe, you might have some questions. We did open it up for audience Q&A, which you will hear now. A quick side note, some of our favorite questions were not spoken directly into microphones. Hopefully you can still understand what was being asked. Uh, recently it's been proposed that um, dark matter may be the result of black holes formed immediately after the Big Bang. Do you, do you have a, an opinion? <laughs> Short answer is no, I don't, unfortunately. It's hard to test these things, and it, it certainly is a feasible possibility. But until there's something that could be predicted that could be measured, um, we won't know.
right? That's, you know, how science works. And so that's the problem with string theory, too, is it's never really predicted anything that can be measured. And there, there are people who actually think that string theory is more like a philosophy more than a science because it doesn't predict measurable things. So that's about as best as I can do on that one. So we don't know why there's any matter in the universe because matter and antimatter immediately annihilate each other when they come in contact. But <clears throat> I've always wondered, could there not be isolated pockets of antimatter, like entire galaxies that are just antimatter? They've simply never contacted matter. Reason I ask is because every so often we hear about cataclysmic releases of energy in the universe. Mm -hmm. I've always wondered, wait, maybe that's something matter and antimatter finally coming into contact. Yeah, there's, there's theories like that. And there's also, um, models where our little bubble of what we can see in the universe happens to be all matter and there's a large part of the universe that is outside of our observable horizon that could be antimatter. Those are still viable theories, so yeah. that's not been ruled out that everything was so kludged together in the beginning that it right, did but contact just, each other. Yeah, it's, you know, there's such an excess that um, it's, it's strange. So yeah. that has to do with the theory of homogeneity that everything in the universe right. is kind of the same as what we see locally, but it may not be because it's with outside of our horizon. Yeah, that, that, that's a possibility and that's okay. something that people study still. I, I yeah. didn't know if that was a ridiculous question or not. Yeah. This is a ridiculous question. Okay. okay. The alternative medicine practitioner downstairs offers quantum alignment therapy. I'm wondering how the Large Hadron Collider can assist with our understanding of that. Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. So maybe I'll send one of my students down there to figure that out. So there's been um, recently a creation of an antitron. I don't remember if it was an anti-neutron or anti-proton within a laboratory. And I've been wondering how this directly relates to... Um, to dark matter, to black matter, and, and I know you didn't want to go into equations, so I have a feeling that there is going to be an equative answer possibly to this. That's certainly something we can, we can answer. Um, antimatter is actually a very well understood thing. Antimatter, like antiprotons and antielectrons, which are called positrons, those exist, um, those we can make in labs, and they exist in nature, and those are well understood. They're almost the same as the stuff on the periodic table, so we group that into regular matter. Well, they have different charge and, and stuff like that, but um, they obey the same quantum mechanics, let me say that, as regular matter, and they emit light. And so, for example, a PET scan, a PET scan, um, that's positron emission tomography. That uses antimatter. So, you know, if you've ever had one, you've been beamed with antimatter and, and, but that's a well understood thing. So antimatter is very different. It's something we do understand and it's distinct from dark matter. Yeah. And so, but you're right. They did, were recently able to create anti-hydrogen, which is an anti-proton being orbited by an anti-electron. And what they found is that atom behaved exactly like a regular hydrogen atom, which is kind of cool. It's well understood physics and it obeys quantum mechanics as we know it. Whereas dark matter is, it looks, it seems to be something else, yeah. I've read that mathematicians say that we cannot prove that we are not living in a simulation. So are we all of us scientists just simply studying the computer program that creates all of us in this virtual reality world? I've read that too, but I also read a study a few years ago by a group, and I don't remember exactly where they were, and I don't remember the names, who actually claimed to have proven that we are not in the computer simulation. <laughs> And I'll, I'll send you the reference if I can find it. Um, yeah, it's, it's like certainly an interesting question. It's the matrix, right? Uh, you said there was antimatter. Is, is there also anti-energy? No, energy is energy, unfortunately. Energy is, um, energy is nature's accounting system. At least that's how Richard Feynman talked about it. As far as we know, energy can certainly be transformed from one type to another, okay? Um, whether it's mechanical or electromagnetic or, or nuclear, uh, can be, you know, have different forms, but energy is, it's just a number, as far as we know, a number with a unit, joules. Well, I just have a, a follow-up question. So it is a zero-sum game, the universe. There's no loss or gain, or is there a possibility? As far as we can tell, the 
if you consider the universe as a closed system, isolated from other things, the total energy should remain constant, because that's what the laws of physics tell us. Thank you for your wonderful lecture. I've always been intrigued by the concept of entanglement at the subatomic level. Does that hold at the universal level? And then one other question. If someone in the universe has their telescope focused on us right now, are we all history? <laughs> okay, good question. So the question of entanglement, um, that's uh, kind of at the core of quantum mechanics. And the best answer I can give you right now is there's a group in Europe who was able to entangle two quantum mechanical particles, and um, that means that they share a single state at some point in time, and then they were able to separate them for, by several kilometers and show that they were still entangled. That's the best that we know so far, okay? Cool. Whether across the universe, I, we can't say at this point. Okay. And then your second question was about looking into the past, and it's true so, you know, when we look at distant objects, we're seeing them as they were um, in the past, right? If you look at the moon, that's actually how it was 1.25 seconds ago, right? If you look at the sun, that's how it was eight minutes ago. And so if someone's looking at us, um, that's true. If, if someone's looking at us from 65 million light years away, they would be seeing dinosaurs. And so, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks again to C.D. Hoyle for the inaugural episode of My Favorite Lecture. And we look forward to upcoming talks from Ben Marshke and Moral Atala later this year. We're so grateful that they can share their passion and knowledge with us. Humboldt State is also grateful to be part of this special community. And thanks to you for listening and supporting this kind of programming. We hope you found it edifying and you're invited to join us at Plaza Grill for more lectures at upcoming episodes. Learn more at khsu.org. And that is our show. Next time on My Favorite Lecture, Ben Marshke presents Witches, Sex and Science in the 16th Century. My Favorite Lecture is a collaboration between Humboldt State, KHSU, and Arcata Main Street, produced by myself alongside executive producers Katie Whiteside, Ed Subkis, Frank Whitlatch, and Nancy Stevenson. Our live sound engineer is Chris Pereira, and Mark Jeffers is our recording engineer. Special thanks to the Plaza Grill, Vicki Joyce, Lisa Rossbacher, Lorna Bryant, Stephanie Lane, Kristen Gould, Lost Coast Light and Sound, Hugh Dalton, and C.D. Hoyle. If you want to dig deeper into the undiscovered universe, we've got show notes, pictures of Big Bang expansion, and other cool links posted right now at khsu.org. This has been my favorite lecture from KHSU. Thanks for listening. <laughs>